What's up, fantasy nerds? Welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, as always, Rob Santos, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And for episode 66, we are diving back into another book by Robert Jackson Bennett. You may recall that episodes 25 and 26 of the Inking Out Loud podcast covered Bennett's Foundry Side, the first novel in his new Founders trilogy. And for today, well... For the release of Shorefall, which was actually a couple weeks ago, if I'm being entirely honest, as of this recording, it's time to continue on in Bennett's world. So, Drew, give us a recap of Shorefall, my man. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> Good luck with that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is this is a pretty crazy book. So, it, it picks up a few years after the events of Foundry Side, where Sanchia and Berenice and Orso and Gregor uh, have founded... Uh, Foundry Side Limited, and they kind of reshaped the structure of the scribing landscape in Taban, where now there are a lot of people who are defecting from the campos and kind of starting their own small businesses, essentially, in an area, a new area called the Lamplands. Uh, but the Foundry Siders are still working to kind of destabilize the campo system and they started off by making a play against the Michiels. I, I'm not sure how they pronounce that name in the audiobook. In the audiobook, it's just Michiel, yeah. You got it pretty yeah, much Michiel. right. Um, but they, they give them new technology to twin their lexicons together. But, of course, by doing so, the Foundry Siders end up stealing all of their technology because they have also twinned, uh, you know, into the Michiel lexicons... Uh, and so they, they're getting ready to distribute all of this proprietary knowledge to destabilize the Campo system. But by doing that, they allowed Valeria, the old editor and like golden angel thing from Foundryside, uh, into Foundryside Limited. And Valeria contacts Sanchia and tells her, look, you guys got to take action. Um, the Dandolos are trying to resurrect Crisides uh, Magnus, Crisides the Great. And they attempt to stop it, but they're too late. Crisides shows up. Uh, he is working on taking down Valeria and getting Clef back. Uh, there's a big old battle at the mountain. And uh, eventually, Crisides shows up and, with the help of Gregor, uh, does indeed capture Valeria and Clef. Uh, as well as Sanchia and Orso. And Orso is dying. Uh, he's, he's been gravely injured by Chrysides and by Gregor. So Berenice is the only one left, but she has to, or she has been twinned with Sanchia, so they kind of share a mind at this point. And Sanchia guides her into the Dandolo Campo where they engineer events, they take down Chrysides, and. Uh, <laughs> essentially release Valeria where they figure out that's a really bad idea Pretty and bad. Gregor then uh, twins himself to Valeria they become this new thing called Tavan Orso sacrifices himself to help kind of uh, minimize the impact of what's going on with this new Valeria Gregor hybrid and Chrysides escapes and, and is on the loose so 
that's pretty much where we stand at the end. Yeah, in Valyria, I forget if you had just mentioned it, in Valyria, well, Tavon escapes too and sets a whole bunch of Dandolo galleons, or just maybe every single uh, merchant three. house. Three, particularly? There were three galleons. That three entire away. galleons escaping with their own separate mines, if you want to call them that, to spread this plague, if you want to call it that. Yeah. So, that's intimidating. Um... Nice, nice recap. I was honestly, even though you were, I know you were shooting for one or two or three minutes, I was still expecting <laughs> it to take longer than that because, oh my god, yeah. there's so much happening. But you managed to actually squeeze it all into a, a really respectably short portion. That's great. Um, I especially <laughs> loved and appreciated how you managed to explain everything that happened in the mountain with, and then something went down at the mountain and you continued on there. Because yeah. <laughs> holy crap, oh my god, there is so much to talk about in this book. And to 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 right before we start I'll add the disclaimer here and I say this all the time but I'll say it again um especially because we have an entire book to talk about this time this is the longest note file I've ever made this note file is even longer than the one I was bragging about for a memory of light part 1 where we covered 3 quarters of a memory of light I've got so much to talk about oh my god starting off though I want to say thank god we're away from the wheel of time not that yeah. it's particularly bad to be in the Wheel of Time, but I have no idea how other podcasts manage to focus on only Wheel of Time content. I would lose my mind. Yeah. Right? It's, Jeez. It's honestly, like, by the end of whatever, eight or nine months of Wheel of Time coverage, I was ready to, to read something else. And maybe this is just a, a symptom of how I've developed as a reader over the years, uh, where I used to endlessly reread The Wheel of Time and Harry Potter and the Rune Lords and, you know, things like that. And nowadays, I don't really reread much anymore. I'll reread for the podcast, you know. Uh, but like I said, when we started The Wheel of Time, that was the first time I'd even touched The Wheel of Time books in, like, five years. Yeah, and there's a reason, and, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I just... I find more value nowadays... Um, reading new things like this, like Shortfall, yeah, like Fantasy. exactly. So, so diving into Shortfall, um, I want to say that this was, by God, an entirely different book than I was expecting. A completely yeah. different beast than Foundryside. And I, I don't know if it was because for the first book, for Foundryside, I was listening to most of it for audiobook because the entirety uh, of my time was spent full-time working, doing, doing welding. Um, and an audiobook, as I've complained about in the past, though it's very convenient, is very terrible for retaining information. This time, I went entirely back to front, since I'm on quarantine, back to front with my Samsung Galaxy S8. I just bought it on Google Play, and holy crap, what a different experience this was. Um, I want to jump with our style discussion first into pacing, because I think it gives us a lot to talk about, a very good jumping-off point. Um, to You know, as part for the course with a second book in the series where we've already had the benefit of the first book to explain everything that we need to know going in. As you expect, we hit the ground running. The heist on the Michelle Campo itself. First, I thought that heist was going to be trying to sell this new damn technology. But then, of course, we find out there's a heist within a heist, right? Yeah. The infiltration of their lexicon. I found that pretty cool. But... Right away, we head into more heists after that, one after another. D directly after this is the heist, uh, the infiltration of the Dandolo Galleon. Um, yeah. After that, it's, oh, we need to talk to Valyria. And then it's straight into the infiltration of the mountain, which is 
a climax in and of itself, which is only halfway through the book at this point. I don't recall being particularly bored with Foundryside, but my god, we are flying all over the place on this one. What did you think of it, man? Yeah, it, the pacing is crazy in this book, uh, especially for the second book in a trilogy. A lot of times you find second books slow down, and, and usually they'll have a big conclusion because that's Generally speaking, when, we, when we're talking about the trilogy structure, you know, your first book lays the groundwork and, and ends with something that opens up the world. The second book is about dealing with that open world and then usually the, the turn, the big bad reveal. You think, you know, um, without spoiling anything, the end of Well of Ascension. I knew you were going there, yes. Or the end of The Empire Strikes Back for instance, where usually there's some sort of loss that happens for the heroes at the end of the second volume. And that's the same here. But the pacing of this one, all the events leading up to that that climactic moment, was absolutely breakneck. When you compare it to the Well of Ascension, for instance, that's a much more kind of pondering, uh, slow-paced burn of a book that has this huge explosion at the end. Here, it was just like explosion after explosion after explosion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we got more climaxes in the first half of the book than I was expecting to get for an entire trilogy. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, my God. Um, I, I, I kind of want to talk about the magic system at this point, too. We're going to probably spend the entirety of the episode, you know, going back to a few of these yeah. points. But just, just getting this out of the way, you know... Like the first volume I wrote down, this one gave me plenty to talk about. I Like this magic system, I mean. I love it for the most part. For the most part. But there are a few places for me, personally, where it started to drag. Um, I felt like the magic system just ultimately didn't strike my fancy. But I can't deny how clever it is in its various applications. Which, for me, it, re it redeems it. I can still call it, for myself, a good magic system. Just because it made me bored at certain, you know spots along the way doesn't take away from what Bennett has achieved in laying the groundwork for this. How'd you find the magic system? Yeah, so I actually have a, a really different perspective on the magic system now than I did when we read Foundryside, because okay. uh, in, in the course of my day job, um, in just the last few months, I've had to start learning some programming. And this magic system is straight up computer programming. Yeah. Like it's just it's just turned into magic and uh, it, it wasn't something that I had considered as an aspect of it really in Foundryside whereas now that I like know a little more about programming I'm like oh my gosh like it's it's smacking me across the face with how yeah. clearly this is just like a magical allegory for computer programming and how the end of this is a virus yeah like you know it, it, it's it's straight up a computer virus like, <laughs> yeah, like, it, I thought it was really, really neat to see something as fantastical as magic being portrayed in terms of sheer logic in the way that computer programming is. Um, mm -hmm. And he doesn't let us down anymore in the second book, you know, with our expectations from the first book. We have a whole lot more of the, the computer programming side of the magic. And we, we, we briefly touched on it in Foundry side, but we didn't really explore it too much. I mean, it's there. It, it's anybody who understands. I don't understand computer programming, but I get the, the gist of it. And I mean, this kind of, this kind of gave me a little more to work with. 
um, seeing how it works. I, I, I did enjoy that, but much more, I found, much more interesting than this was this new take on magic that Bennett experiments with in the terms of theoretical physics now. You know, magic in the form of underlying foundational laws that need to be tweaked, inverted, or otherwise corrupted. Uh, like, I'm no physicist myself. Let me say that. I, I've said it before. I am no physicist. But I, I fell in love with the idea of this these twinned realities using scribing. Mm -hmm. The first time Orso explained his new invention to Moretti, in the very first scene of the book, I didn't get it. And then I read it through a second time, and I still didn't get it. So I put the book down. <laughs> And then I returned the next day and I read it a third time. And I still didn't get it. But at that point, I made a promise to myself. I went back to the beginning of the scene. I I literally took it sentence by sentence as Orso Ignacio was explaining it. I did not continue with the next sentence until the previous concept was solidified in my head. And when I took it piece by piece as Orso was explaining it, it, I, it finally clicked. I understood. And what's happening here is that these twin realities, if I'm understanding this correctly... They're just an extension of the concept of quantum entanglement. Einsteinian spooky action at a distance. Kind of mixed in with a bit of flavor of Schrodinger's cat, you know, for good yeah. measure. Um, and once I realized he's playing not only with computer programming at this point, but the concepts behind theoretical physics, I immediately started to understand this magic system just a little more. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then when, when the implications opened themselves up to me with exactly what Orso was talking about, I understood why the Michiels were so stunned by what he had mm -hmm. invented because like if you consider if you understand how how basic all of this is for that entire society and how he has managed to change something so foundational and so eloquently it it really yeah. really shocked me and I was immediately on board so there's that too yeah yeah i think that's a really good point um as far as style goes, uh, I had one other major point that I wanted to bring up, and that was the tone <laughs> of this book, and how how much of a horror element. Oh yes, I have this. more. Yeah, I mean, clearly the galleon, the whole galleon sequence was, I mean, harrowing. You know, the that I could see that in my head so vividly. You know the using the scribed sight to go down these darkened hallways, and then like the slow discovery of people who have mutilated themselves out of just, like, sheer insanity because they saw Cressides. And then that scene when Sanchia is confronted by Cressides and she's like, I can't look at him, I can't look at him. And, you know, there's just the description of, like, the shadow of him mm, on the wall. His silhouette on the wall. And, like, <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my gosh. It, it's... It's so incredible. It, it, it's cool to see that Robert Jackson Bennett has, you know, this ability in his toolbox that he's not just writing a, you know, a sharply social critical fantasy heist story, but he can he can delve not just a little bit into horror, but deeply into horror when he needs to. Yeah, he definitely can. Um, I have a like my my style discussion is the absolute longest part of my notes. I have a lot more to talk about myself <laughs> style, but I will riff off of that with the horror. Um, Sancha's nightmare at the beginning of chapter five. That nightmare might be the single scariest thing I've ever read. Save perhaps I wrote this down. Save perhaps a specific moment in Terry Goodkind's Chain Fire. But the horror yeah, doesn't I never end. Never read there. that one. 
<laughs> oh, there, there's this one specific moment that's on par with this level of horror. That's just like, whoa, but not, not to go into any more there. Um, but the horror doesn't end here in this book. And holy shit, I was not ready at the time for the infiltration, as you were just talking about, of Dandolo Galleon. The entire sequence is terrifying from the first sentence to the last. If you had asked me beforehand, going into this scene, what I thought was going to happen, I would have happily said, oh, a second heist right after the first. Unexpected, but totally cool with it. More soldiers to evade, more engineers to intimidate, more improvising to happen when things go inevitably wrong. Maybe another desperate getaway. What I was not ready was for this early book climax of horror. Oh my god, I I loved the sequence. He managed to instill this atmosphere of something is wrong right away. Yeah. Before oh, yeah. we even approach the ship, there's something about the quiet of the scene, the hulking advance of the galleon through this fog, this noticeable lack of activity on board. You know, and the pacing at which he revealed these things, he revealed more and more at exactly the right pace as Sancho and Gregor made their way through the ship. The unnerving absence of the crew, the, the continuously building atmosphere of tension, wrongness, and then he ups the ante by discovering bodies and the mutilation that they've apparently done to themselves. And then Sancho and Gregor hear a scream, and the way they just mm. glance at one another and did just did you? And then of course he cuts her off. Yep. I did. Oh my god, so well done. And then we find out that Cressides, the threat that I figured would end the book with, he's already back. Yeah. I was like, what? Already? And this Cressides Magnus himself appears and starts talking to Sancia? I stopped and I texted you right away, Drew. I was like, what is happening in this book? Holy yeah. crap, it is amazing. This book went from 8 to 11 instantly. I, oh, I, there was, I loved it. I loved it so much. Yeah, and so when you're talking about that that kind of mood, the the eeriness of the empty Unnerving. ship, unnerving. You know, yes. Yeah, so it 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 reminded me forcibly of um, a, a Halo story, actually. Oh, the there fight. some some years back, there was a short story collection called Halo Evolutions. Oh, and uh, I've heard of this. And they were of. You know, they were kind of hit or miss. There was like a kind of a novella about Admiral Cole written by Eric Nyland. Uh, that was good. But there was one ooh, smack dab in the middle of this collection called The Mona Lisa. And it was about this UNSC team finding a derelict ship called The Mona Lisa. And it is, to this day, one of the scariest stories I've ever read. And it this whole galleon sequence reminded me greatly of it. It was... It, 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 used kind of some of the same um, you know techniques had some of the same trappings in in the setting and the um, the lack of people and the darkness you know like how your expectations are subverted and then once you get into a certain mindset of like okay this is scary now I wasn't expecting this to be scary but it is it uses that mindset. The author knows you're in that and builds, draws the tension out so that the point, the breaking point, you know, comes at a satisfying moment rather than, you know, moving too quickly and giving you the answers. It, it oh, yeah. feeds you information. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Dribble by dribble. <laughs> Just at the right, at the right pace, at the right flow. It was, it was well, well done. And, and completely took me by surprise not to say that i was i didn't think bennett capable of something like this but it was just so 
in 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 the wrong not in the wrong spot in an unexpected spot and with so much unexpected force that it was so much more effective for it very very well done mm-hmm. um i f- there's one thing i forgot to mention when we're talking about the magic though i want to back up just a few minutes here oh. um i have just a tiny complaint about the magic and it, it's kind of the same complaint i have about i had it in the first book i'll just elaborate a little more i suppose um this could i want to say this could very likely just be a reader error or maybe I'm just spoiled by authors like Sanderson. It's probably just a problem with me. But this magic fi- system still feels really clunky to me. It feels a little cluttered. I think cluttered is the word I'm going to use. There's just a, there, are, there are a few times, more than a few actually, there, there are many times I'll say, that I started to grow bored with the whole every foundry cider in the scene intimately understands the magic system, and then they just go back and forth, back and forth with complex concepts stack on top of complex concept stack on top of another complex concept until suddenly with one single clue they've managed to arrive at the entirety of Cressidi's plan with like three four five extrapolations of logic each of which I'm still kind of struggling to wrap my mind around like there were a couple of these scenes that had my eyes glazing over you know I just wanted I was impatient to go on to the next heist um so there was that did you have any point in the, the during like reading this magic system that you felt uh this is a little boring um, or maybe no. just their discussions when they're going leap from logic, leap of logic, leap of logic. Were you lost at all in those points? I was a little. No, I, I wouldn't say I was. Uh, I was pretty engaged with this book the whole way through. There were maybe a couple of points that I I wanted a little more from, uh, but I, I was never bored, I would say. I, you know what I'll say? I wanted him to show me. I didn't want him to tell me. And there's a lot of telling okay, at certain at certain points. And I was yeah, just that's like, oh fair. my god, it's been like 15 minutes of telling. Let's get on with... That. Let's just let me see it in action and I'll understand it. But yeah, again... That's, that's definitely fair. I, I do want to reiterate, this could this is probably just me. Well, not just me, but this is a problem with me. And I imagine it's a problem that maybe some other readers will have. Because I'm not unique in any way. Um, but yeah. And, and I think uh, my last style discussion here. I'm a little ambivalent, I suppose, um, about Bennett's implying modern-day lingo in some of these characters. I can see the utility of it. Uh, there's there's something to be said about engaging with younger audiences. Sancha uses the word like in her diction in a lot of the same ways that we do, like, like replacing a comma, in other mm-hmm. words. But there are other phrases that stood out to me. One in particular that I can think of right now. She was able to winnow her way through the building like a hot knife through eel fat. I stopped and I wrote down, I was like, was was that stretch really worth it, though? Just to place the modernized idiom in such a fantastical setting? You know? Yeah. I'm not going to say it's wrong to do. Mostly because this is very subjective. And bes- besides the fact, far be it for me to tell a talented author how to write a book. I'm just going to say that it definitely stood out to me. For that moment here and there, it kind of took me out of the narrative. That's all. I didn't have that much of a problem with the anachronisms in it. I, I think there are other books we've read that I have more problems with. Sure, uh, sure. <coughs> Ruin of Kings. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, I mean, even Mistborn. Oh, uh, yeah, Elantris. there's a few. Uh, okay, but, fair enough. But nonetheless, I think uh, Bennett has a, a casual voice that helps carry some of these anachronisms they don't fare us out of place fair uh, because he doesn't try to write in in any kind of like 
overpoweringly literary manner. Uh, he's willing to grapple with with concepts and ideas and and social issues and things in a very literary way, but his actual prose and his dialogue is casually written. Yes. And so it I think that that serves kind of a, a dual purpose. One, it, it it's an easier uh, gateway into these higher literary concepts that he's dealing with. And two, it allows us as readers, as you know, modern day readers, to connect with his characters a little bit more, yeah. a little bit more easily, perhaps. Yeah. So. Yeah, I can definitely, uh, like I said, I can see the utility of it. And my so my last style point, and and this is something that's been very much on my mind recently because I just uh, published an article for Tor.com on Foundry Side and the Rune Lords and how I these saw that. books. Yeah. deal um, with magic in an economic sense. That magic isn't just, oh, how can I blow stuff up on the battlefield better? And it's not even just like, oh, what um, uh, what moral problems do I have to deal with, which are just usually an extension of like, is it okay to kill people? You know, But that in the Rune Lords and in Foundry Side, we see the magic systems having a tangible and substantial impact on how the economies of these places work. You know, without, uh, without scribing, Tavon, Tavon's entire economic mercantile system falls apart, you know? And there was a lot less of that in this book. It, it was set up in that way, where it was all about bringing down this corrupt, um, imbalanced economic system but it very quickly I thought devolved back into uh, just moral philosophy and that moral philosophy and this was probably the biggest failing of the book for me was that the moral philosophy wasn't really about the magic anymore it, the magic was a vehicle to deliver the threats the existential threats they have but the questions they're asking don't really have anything to do with the magic. Mm. It's just like, you know, theories of power and, and corruption and slavery and, and whether there's a possibility for power imbalance to exist and humanity to live in harmony and not oppress <clears throat> certain subsections of, of humanity, the, the less empowered. And that was less about... Um, you know, scribing and and more just about the theory of it, you know. And I yeah. wanted there to be more uh, more engagement with the magic when we're asking those questions in the book than there ended up being. Hmm. You know, I, I I forgot that I actually had one more style point to discuss here, and this is on the subject of Sancia and Berenice and their relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I, I enjoyed how, as an author should, in my humble opinion. Ben, uh, Bennett managed to make Sancia and Berenice a couple, but their, their their conflict and character journey had absolutely nothing to do with their particular sexuality. They felt like mm -hmm. real people to me. They complement each other in, in the right ways. And since we're on the subject, I wasn't prepared for the additional bit of innuendo that we're now getting on occasion. There's a particular moment that comes to mind when Sancia, at one point, uh, she's in the presence of Gregor, and she's talking to Berenice. 
Um, I don't know if there's others nearby. I think it was just Gregor, but she smiled like ravenously. She looked at Berenice and she said, I eat a lot more than rice and beans these days. Yeah. I was like, whoa, Bennett's getting dirty on us. But then we, I stopped her to consider, you know, this isn't the traditional, oh, it's been six months since the climax of the last book, or it's been a year since the world changed. There's been three years between the end mm -hmm. of book one and the start of book two. Sancha is a fully fledged adult. You know, she's well, she's more actually. Yeah, more than that now. What's yeah. happening with her aging process? But yeah, yeah. like Sancha and, and Berenice, their relationship and and how, what it meant to them and their actual character journeys contained in this volume. What did you think, man? Uh, so this is kind of a, a multi-part question, and this really starts sure, yeah. going into character. Uh, yes. Rather than than style points, um, and I have to approach it by saying this to start I don't like Sanchi as much in Shorefall as I did in Foundry that's my first Sanchi point for characters thank you thank you yes I, I agree I can't quite put my finger on why she was just she was more abrasive and maybe it's a testament to Bennett's work with the other characters but I thought she was just much less compelling this time around and uh you know, maybe as I'm thinking about it, maybe this makes sense. If you remember, one of my biggest complaints about um, uh, Foundry Side was how I felt her internal struggle was resolved too easily and maybe too early, where um, her scribing was fixed and turns her into an editor. Yes, that was then, you know, revealed here to cause more conflicts for Sanchia, but it wasn't really like. It was only revealed later on, so Sanchia's sort of internal conflict in this book where she's like feeling old all the time, that didn't really hit home for me. We'll see how, it, how it's approached in the third book. I think it could be done much better in the third book now that we have this knowledge about what Valeria did to her. But because of that, because I, I just wasn't as invested in Sanchia this time around uh her relationship with berenice it, it was very much just like a i i sure it's a thing like i really? i wasn't i wasn't all that concerned about it i i didn't ever feel any tension in their relationship the only moment that i i uh felt any kind of tension to that situation was one point uh where they were talking about, you know, like the twinning minds and things. And I was a little worried that he was going to turn it into a polyamorous thing with Gregor. Oh, yeah. Because okay, I thought, fair. Yep. thankfully, he didn't do that. Because um, I think if he had done that, it would have done a, a big disservice to Gregor's uh, character arc. Mm. Uh, that's, that's not what we've spent two books in Gregor's head dealing with. So throwing that in there would have felt very out of nowhere and and just, I don't know, would have messed with the dynamic between Sanchi and Berenice too much. So as it turned out, I was like, the only time I was concerned about their relationship was like in relation to Gregor because I was way more invested in what was going on with Gregor in this mm. book. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, diving right into Sanchi and our characters. To be frank, and I'm going to agree with pretty much everything you just said. I'm not a huge fan of Sanchia. I don't actively dislike her. 
She just, especially no. in this book, she doesn't stand out to me in ways that other characters do, like Gregor, like Cressides, like Orso, or even Polina. She's not boring, but she's not particularly fun either. Yeah. Um, there were that's a, a, sorry, go ahead. That's a really important word there. She was fun in Foundry Side. She's yes. not fun in Shortfall. Yeah. Same with, and for me, I'm going to talk about this too, Orso. Orso's felt significantly less fun to me in this book, but for his character, it felt appropriate. And I'll, I'll expand upon that when we get to him. Mm, yeah, but going yeah, on, <laughs> yeah, with, with, with Sanchia here, what, there were a few times when Sanchia pissed me off. When she came off to me, I was just incredibly ignorant. And I don't know why, if it, I don't know if it's just part of her character, or maybe there were, there were moments where, where Bennett perhaps needed to put off a particular revelation for another few pages. But uh, I, I caught on myself, I caught on right away to what was happening with her aging process. And I imagine it, everybody's going to. Right near the beginning, Sanchia contemplates the lines around her mouth and the sprinkles of gray in her hair. And I thought, I stopped and I thought, wait, isn't she like 19 at this point? But we keep getting clue after clue that Sanchia is aging a bit faster than she should be. There's even one point where she calls it out and she outright says about her beat up condition, I think it was, I'm not as young as I used to be. Like, right. and for some reason, I don't know why, it wasn't until the very end of the book in our final climax, with 95% of the book behind us, that the revelation about what Valyria did to her came to the spotlight, fiddling with Sancha's body and the skull plate and accelerating her aging process um, as a result. I was, I was, I'm not going to lie, I was rolling my eyes a little bit at that point. I was like, yeah, we knew this 300 pages ago. Keep up, main character. You know? Yeah, I um, <laughs> I was a little underwhelmed by that revelation too. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't a hundred percent sure that the aging thing was the result of what Valeria did. Right. I knew there was something off about it. Where I, I had the same reaction as you did that first moment early on, where she's like contemplating the lines on her face, and I'm like, "You're a teenager still." Like, yeah. What? Like, this, it, this, something doesn't add up here. I, at first, and, I chalked it up to, like, my 22-year-old self saying, oh, man, I have some pains now. I'm so old that it's like, you idiot. You don't even know. But, no, there's actually something going on. There's something yeah, going on. Yeah, but so while that was foreshadowed constantly throughout the book, the other thing that was foreshadowed was, you know, that Valeria did something to her, mm. not just turning her into an editor. And... That had much more of a, like, foreboding sense to it. So when the revelation was basically, like, just, like, oh, this is the side effect of being an editor, you know, that fell pretty flat for me. Mm. Uh, I, I wanted there to be something more um, explosive revealed about what she did to Sanchia. Or perhaps even in the in the final conflict there... Um... Where like Sanchia keeps noting that as she's as she's doing what she needs to do, you know, Valeria's kind of looking at her suspiciously, paying oh, yeah. a little too much and a little too much attention, looking a little too hungry. It's like, okay, that's a nice little clue. I liked that. But then we got it like three, four times, and I was like, Okay, okay, let's just get it out of the way at this point. What is this bitch hiding? I wanted to know well, at that point. I I knew in, in those scenes I was like I knew exactly what it meant when when she kept, like, seeing Valeria looming over her shoulder and like that. And and I will say, at least it's consistent to Sanchia's character. 
that she can be a little dense sometimes in uh, okay. high-pressure situations. Yeah. If you remember back in Foundry Side when she's, like, strapped to the table and she's trying uh-huh. to figure out how to yeah. open it and she's, like, yep. breath. And I'm like, it's a word. Say the freaking word. It's obvious. And it took her so long. Yeah. To figure it out, I, uh, when yeah, okay. I thought it was clear as day from the very first moment, and it happened again here. Yeah, oh, it, it, I'll tell you what, Drew, it happened again again, too. There's another moment I want to talk about where I felt like the, maybe, I was going to say, like, I felt like the author's hand was a little heavy and needing to keep Sanchia ignorant, but you make a good point in that this could be something that's just static with Sanchia, something that, because that, I forgot about this point from book one where she was being very very dumb in some areas very dense that's the word that's a good word i like that word thank you drew dense when when valeria is explaining a bit more about crescides in this book Mm -hmm. and she says i do not know what the maker would have merged with he would almost certainly have chosen something alive so that he could travel and observe the world so perhaps some kind of creature and in my head i'm already going okay okay that that explains the moths yeah or then she goes on or perhaps Many such creatures all at once. I'm yeah. nodding my head. I'm going, okay, we get it now. That's a little redundant, maybe, maybe. But, you know, somebody could be lagging behind. But then Sanchia just considers this, and she's bewildered. I'm just like, yeah. oh, come on. Are you serious? <laughs> really? But, nah, yep. well, whatever. Yep. I, but then, I do want to point out, uh, just, just to pat myself on the back a little bit, I nailed that prediction. Oh fuck yeah! Hell yes, <laughs> hell yes, you did. From you our the shit out of that prediction. Episodes. Yep. And then there's one more point where she just she doesn't say something dumb or think something dumb. She just does something incredibly dumb. And this is when Crescides Magnus himself shows up at their firm to begin the final confrontation. And she decides, for some reason or other that I can't even begin to fathom, to carry the fucking key on her as she I approaches know. him. I know. Oh, Lord. Oh, my God. I don't like... You know what? I will say this. I don't like Sanchia. I started this off by saying (laughs) I don't actively dislike her, but she's just kind of boring. I'll say it now. I don't like her. She's just so dense. I mean, I I definitely fall more in that ambivalent territory. I don't dislike her, but I Mm. I used to like her, and I don't anymore. Maybe she's just a character I like who frustrates the crap out of me. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Shall we move on to Gregor? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Can I start? Yes. Go okay. for it. In the last Bennett episode, so like I said, episodes 25 and 26 of this podcast, I claimed that Orso Ignacio was my favorite character of this bunch. And that opinion has taken a sharp turn in favor now, as I imagine it is for a lot of other people, in favor of Gregor Dandolo. What a character this is. I cheered for him a lot in Foundryside, but in that book I found him to be a little st- Diff, you know. I did. Mm-hmm. I, I realized at the time though that doesn't necessarily, you know, doesn't necessarily mean he's written character uh, written poorly. Some characters just aren't as excitable. Some people just aren't as excitable as others. And indeed, his personality his personality didn't really change much, if at all, in this book. But the revelations we get about his history, oh my good lord! Yeah, I'll let you rip I... off that before I continue. Yeah. I did like him a lot in Foundryside. I, I, if I remember right on those episodes, I said my favorite character was probably either him or Berenice. Mm. And, uh, and I think that, that remains uh, after Shorefall. But Gregor, especially, the, the character arc he had in this book 
once again, you know, I had some some pretty strong criticisms in Foundryside, and one of them was about uh, how Gregor seemed to be building up to a certain um, uh, you know character climax, and then had all of his agency robbed from him, and and his whole thing was just thrown out the window. Yep. And I had a problem with that. Here, he once again has his agency taken from him, but because we already know that that previous character arc is out the window, it, it there's so much more of an impact. Because we're given right away in this book, his new character conflict is uh, not wanting to be a killer anymore. That he doesn't... You know, it, it's about him losing his agency. It's about him struggling with the things he's done in the past and not wanting to repeat them. And so it's heartbreaking what happens to him here, both mm -hmm. in the revelations about his past and in the new um, situation <clears throat> with Chrysides taking away his agency and controlling him. And then the climax here is like he achieves his freedom at a horrible, horrible cost. Yeah. And, cost, and yeah. it's like... That that was a masterful character arc in this book. Mm. Now I'm going to start by saying I am for this next point. I'm going to start by saying I'm the oldest of four. I have a little brother. I have two little sisters. And after reading that scene from Gregor's past about what really happened in the carriage, the day he lost his father and brother, that absolutely ruined me. And when I say ruined, the listener. I'm talking to the listener now. You, you may be thinking, oh, Rob was really moved by that. It must have been hard to continue. No. What I mean by that is that after reading this scene, well, no, not even after reading this scene, honestly, before I made it to the end of the scene, um, I legitimately put the book down. And I'm not ashamed to say that I cried. I was so shaken by that scene that I, I mean, when I returned to finish, I was trembling. I, like, what a, what a horrifying scenario. What a deep visceral source of god I don't, I don't want to say guilt that's not shame is not strong enough but that moment of domenico his 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 older brother holding out his hand pleading for his little brother in his final moments gregor's yeah. horrifying memory this that recoiling and screaming in fear and and knowing that his brother died with that sound in his ears that fucking destroyed me i can honestly say that never ever not one single time in any other book, movie, video game, or any other form of content you could think of was I shaken as much as I was by that scene. It was the single most emotionally intense thing I have ever experienced in a story. And wow. it left me catatonic for hours afterwards. Wow. It hurt. I, I, I can't explain what Bennett managed to accomplish in that scene. Oh my god. That's all I have to say. Well, I, mean, I will, you know what? Going on with Gregor, though. Still talking <laughs> about Gregor's journey, though. Sorry, I just needed to draw that point there. The self-sacrifice of Gregor's character, too. The, 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 the memories that Sanchia and, by extension, Berenice were subjected to. The repeated dying that he puts himself through. Exposing every dark secret in his heart. Not just that he has these secrets, that he's willing to expose them to others my heart yeah. just breaks for this guy i loved how the culmination of his character happened as it did though with berenice weeping and she's holding out her hand to him in much the same way that his late brother 
did, you know, in his final moments. His de Gregor's decision about accepting failure if it means growth and taking her hand in return and embracing that hand in in the same way he embraces that memory. It was just it was perfect. And to yeah. see him get stiffed at the end with another sacrifice to erase his whole self so that he might stop Valyria. I'm just like I'm so uh I don't, I don't I don't even know how to respond to that. I'm so devastated by that. I'm lost for words. Uh, it was it was just incredible character work and by extension I thought I I I was really impressed by what Bennett did with Ophelia in this book. Yes. Where she was, oh my she God, was I mean, a, like... a a detestable person in Foundry side. I mean I I was on record saying I thought Ophelia was a better villain than than um oh my gosh, what's her name? Oh yeah. Uh, Estelle. Estelle. Estelle, yeah. yeah. Um, I, and and now, in Shorefall, Ophelia is is a pitiful character, a sympathetic she's neutered, character, for lack of a better word, I suppose. Yeah. And you know, she's she's a wreck. She's broken at the end, and then she has this final, you know, heroic act to release Gregor. Yeah. That you know that shows uh, really her character arc is is you know the this symbol of why the ends don't justify the means mm. you can have the most pure-hearted motives and truly desire something good but if you go about it in a bad way well gonna be some problems <laughs> yeah and i think it, that particular point is was driven home most effectively um with more weight i should say because it wasn't all suddenly done at the very end in this chaotic moment of indecision and suddenly snap decision, I'm going to change who I am. This was a very slow reveal that Ophelia mm -hmm. Dandolo got throughout this, the course of the entire book as she has lost all of her power and she is seeing more and more what her choices have earned her and how they have continued to torture her family. Um, I mean, she... like. She had several moments where she started to to clearly think, "Are we? Are, am I? Is this? Am I doing the right thing? Am I really doing the right thing?" Um, and because this was a, a book long ordeal for her, it felt so much more poignant at the end. It felt it felt. I don't know how else to. I I I, I did not expect to like Ophelia Dandolo by the end of this book. So another subversion of expectation that Bennett is just throwing willy-nilly. I love how good he is at these. Yeah. Uh, and this is a, a general point to this book in comparison to Foundry Side. I thought he did a much better job at subverting expectations this time around. Mm. Uh, we both agreed that one of the biggest problems with Foundry Side was its predictability. Uh -huh. And this book was much less predictable. There uh -huh. were a couple of things... You know that I that I kind of saw coming with Sanchi's age. Um, the other one was Clef's uh, identity, but yeah. but other than that, there were uh, basically all the other ma major twists caught me off guard. You know, I, I or at least uh, were not things I expected. Okay, that's fair. I mean, I, I felt like this one was still kind of, you know, kind of on the predictable side, maybe a little too much so, like, for the same reasons that you just said. I, I, I saw Sancha's revelation about what what's going on with her aging a mile away, through hundreds of pages before. I will admit that I was a little taken aback by the revelation of Clef's identity. Not too much. 
I, I knew there was something wrong and that they were not getting the full story and that their yeah. expectations were, you know, incorrect. Um, what I thought was going to happen was it was just something simpler, that it was going to be revealed that uh, the, 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 the dying, emaciated boy in the bed was his little brother, not, hmm. his, not his son. Well, actually, Cressides himself the son of, right, the, of yeah. the cloaked figure. That took me by surprise. Uh, the fact that Clef was actually the father. I thought Clef was the little brother and somehow it was going to mirror Gregor's story in a little way. Um, oh, but, yeah, uh, that so would have been so, neat. So, so it, it did take me by surprise there. I, I was not uh, quick enough to keep up with that twist. Or, or I should say, I wasn't um, mm -hmm. foresighted enough to actually see that one coming. So, But I mean, like, the, the twist with Gregor and Valeria merging... Oh, I mean, that was the first yeah. thing I wrote down as soon as as soon as Valeria explained what would happen if she merged with Gregor instead of Sancia. I stopped. I wrote down. I opened my note app on my phone, and I went, "Okay, so she's totally going to merge with Gregor. She is not going to merge oh. with Sancia, right?" Wow, I I did not expect that. Really? I, I was, oh, I was that... taken by surprise there. Oh well, wow! I, no. I shouldn't say taken by surprise. Like in the moment, I was like, "Oh no, I know what's happening here," but uh before that moment started before that scene was progressing the way it was i expected valeria to merge with sancia but not in this book i thought it would be in the next book mm. well i saw i'll tell you what i'll tell you what it kind of drew it a little away for me too because not only did i immediately stop and make that prediction that oh it's gonna be gregor obviously that sounds way too cool not to explore but then we had this moment we had this moment where um, Gregor can't get the little box to Sancia, so he instead just pockets it himself. And I'm in that moment, yeah. I'm going, okay, yeah, I, I was totally right. I know exactly where this is going. And then we spend another 200 pages waiting for Gregor to finally decide, oh, I'm actually going to do this now. So when that, for me, personally, when that moment finally came, I was a bit underwhelmed. I had seen it coming from so far away. Oh, okay. Fair enough. So... But this is, I think this is a great spot just to kind of get our thoughts on Valyria out of the way, since we're still, she's, you know, entangled with Gregor there. Uh, yeah. Um, um, I I generally liked what he did with Valeria in this book. Okay. Uh, I knew, you know, from from the moment we really met her in Foundry's side, I was like, oh, oh she's bad news, you know. And, and that it was always going to be just a relationship, an alliance of convenience. And that she had way worse things down the line uh, planned, mm. <laughs> basically. Yeah. Okay. So I I expected that she would be, you know, a major threat going forward. Like, like if if you were to ask me at the beginning of this book, or maybe at at chapter five, when we find out, like, oh, Chrysides is coming back. I would have told you my expectation was Cressides gets defeated at the end of this book, but in so doing, Valeria ascends and becomes more powerful, and she's the ultimate enemy mm. for book three. Damn. And so, so in that way, I I was you know surprised by the end of this book. Cressides was not defeated. He was. I mean, you know, he he took some body blows, but he's still around. He's still a force, and. It's not Valeria, it's this new computer virus, Tavan. Valeria Gregor insanity hybrid. Like mm, Yeah. 
So, I, I, I love how that. your expectations and my expectations were so damn different. They were so different. Because if you had asked me what I thought was going on with the whole Valyria and Gregor, or just the Valyria versus Cressides thing, I thought that Valyria was going to sacrifice herself to nuke Cressides out of existence. Hmm. I thought that was going to happen. Valyria, to me, was all over the place as a character. I will admit that. There were a lot of times we went from trusting her to not trusting her to trusting her again to not trusting her. Or maybe you weren't trusting her in the first place. Sancho and Berenice definitely didn't. I thought in those rare moments when they were talking to or speaking inside one another's heads, I thought they weren't quite being fair to Valyria. They had some good points. I didn't want them to trust her, but I thought they were being a little too harsh. Um, Valyria confused me a lot, though. Despite the fact that she came off as perhaps a bit too self-righteous, and that Cressides himself, who at some points I was starting to realize wasn't entirely evil... Um, and he didn't really, definitely didn't have much reason to lie about anything, and he claimed that she was a far worse threat to the world than he. Somehow, her betrayal still took me by surprise. Interesting. It was surprising to me, or like, I, I saw it coming from a mile away that she was going to merge with Gregor, but I thought it was going to be for a good thing. I had no idea that was going to turn into such a, a, a bigger threat than it had been previously, and that Cressides is going to get away. I hmm. I was completely blown away by that. Interesting. Yeah. That is funny. We had very different I know. On, in some uh... in some ways like we we predicted a hell of a lot of the same things in the first book and I imagine we're going to predict a hell of a lot of the same things for the next book. But our expectations going into this one were so flipped on each other's heads. I loved it. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Shall we discuss uh you want to briefly get Orso out of the way before we dive into Cressides? I, I do. I don't have a lot to say about Orso, but I did I have, have another um, uh, kind of revelation that grew out of this whole realization that scribing is just computer programming. Okay. And, and so I was I was kind of thinking about this as more of a science fiction story than fantasy. That's as fair. I, you know, after I had That's finished fair. it and I was kind of preparing for the episode. And, and I was trying to come up with like characters from other... Uh, you know, other science fiction stories that would fit. And and I wasn't super successful at that, except Orso immediately jumped out to me. He is a blend of Professor Farnsworth and Bender from Futurama. <laughs> oh my god, I was not expecting Futurama to come up in this episode. Holy sh oh, you know what? I need exactly to watch more Futurama. what Orso is. I need like, to watch more Futurama. I've only seen like five episodes in my oh, whole Oh, dude, life. it's so good. It's, it's yeah. one of the best shows you can you can watch out there. I, I but, definitely appreciate it for its its cultural significance and its genius. I, I know that Matt Groening's a genius. So eventually I will dive into that that pool of awesome. But yeah, that's Orso is a hybrid of Bender and Farnsworth. <laughs> okay. Um, on, the, uh, on the subject of Orso, I only have one thing to say about Orso, and it was that I was significantly less impressed with Orso's character this time around. I liked him a lot more in Foundryside. Now, don't get me wrong. I like where his character went. I found it to be appropriate and interesting and properly engaging. My only complaint, if I had one, is that we don't have the colorful language out of him that we do here, the turn of phrase, the clever mm -hmm. and, and, and deep driving insults that we had in book one. 
Um, it's just kind of petty jibes at this point. He seemed only, to me, only to exist for at least 90% of this book, at least, to just deliver useful exposition. To, to butt in between Sancia and Berenice and Gregor's extrapolated leaps of logic to explain it in another way again and again for, to make sure the reader's following along. To me, it kind of felt transparent at times. Um, even if somewhere mm. along the, the way Bennett needed to explain a problem from multiple angles and there just wasn't enough character room perhaps inside Orso to incorporate that, I, I, to me it just felt like sometimes Bennett commandeered Orso rather than used his voice if that makes any sense at all because to me Orso was just a lot of I don't know exposition you just kept butting in with like remember it, it kind of works like this or just kind of re-explaining something for the reader that I just I I, I kind of got sick of it huh I I definitely saw it much differently uh I I liked Orso more in this book because I thought he had a better character arc uh he he was hmm. He became a really melancholy character, and the yeah. fact that he was still trying to, you know, rip off some one-liners here and there felt sad to me because it was very clear from the get-go that he is an old man in mm. what is becoming a young person's game, and and I liked the sort of the bittersweet nature of his relationship with Berenice, and and what he wants for her and, and what he's been working toward with her. And so seeing his deterioration as the book goes on, both physically and emotionally, and then him trying to, to be the same old or so and, and paste that smile on his face and, and, you know, toss some, some sharp quips out there felt more like the last gasps of a dying man. And, and so I wasn't surprised at all when he sacrificed himself when he died at the end of the book. Mm. But but rather, Supposedly I died. was satisfied. What was that? Supposedly died. I'm expecting well, he's still alive somehow. Ooh, I, somehow. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> because that is the appropriate culmination of his character arc as established in this book. That mm. that he his time is gone. It's the time for Berenice now. It's the time for Sanchia. And... And, and Claudia and, you know, Giovanni and, and the other younger, more liberated scribers where Orso's job was just to change the guard. Yeah. And so I liked it because of that. There was a melancholy, like I said, bittersweet flavor to his character arc. And those tend to be what I like the most. Hmm. So. Yeah. I, I do want to reiterate that it's not that I don't like where his character ended up, because I can tell that someone's going to think that's what I mean. I love where his character went. I love how he, he, he ended up deciding, or at least coming to the realization that Berenice is, 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 is for lack of a better term, his, his, his daughter. Right? Like, yeah. like, he sacrificed himself for her. I loved his last scene, and I felt it was perfect. But it just, it, I think, to me, it was just the, the rapid change. It might have been the three-year time span between the end of the last book and the start of this one. But in, uh, he ended the last book as still this sharp, cynical, obnoxious on occasion, but very clever and talented guy. And then suddenly he's just desaturated so much in this one. Starts right off as a... As a as uh, just a, a, a shell of his former self. Like, I just, I don't know. 
I, I loved Orso so much in the first one because of his clever insult. And this one, yeah. though I, I really appreciate his character and I, and I love the character, it wasn't as fun to me. It was better, but it wasn't as fun to me. So maybe that's why. I was just expecting a little more fun out of that character. I wasn't expecting the added dimension. So, Yeah, and I think that's just emblematic of what this book is, where Sanchi is not as fun. Orso's not as fun. It, th mm. This book is not trying to be fun the way Foundry Side was. Yeah, despite the fact that its pace is a hundred times the speed, it's still not... Oh, yeah. The, the yeah. character <laughs> journeys themselves aren't as fun. The characters themselves aren't as mm -hmm. fun. But what's happening around them is explosive and amazing. And since we're talking about explosive and amazing, should we talk about Cressides? Yes. I was going to say should and shall, and I said shed. So we'll, we'll roll with it. Um... Best villain I've read in years. Better villain even, in my opinion, which should tell you something, than Mile Koth, or Tonal Koth, however you want to... I disagree there. Koth. You Do you? For, the, for, for those who don't know who that is, check out Stover. Um, <laughs> but Cressides yes, Magnus. Holy shit. What a terrifying figure. The, the elements of horror that surround his image. The sheer insurmountable power he displays. The intimate and heartbreaking past of his that keeps seeping through in these moments of appropriate vulnerability. Not forced vulnerability, but appropriate vulnerability. I felt like Bennett wrote the perfect villain for this trilogy. So, he is a good villain, but I don't think he's better than Mylecoth for one major reason, and okay. that is self-awareness. Self Cressides is only self-aware to a point, and then sure. he begins deluding himself. Mylecoth is completely self-aware every step of his journey like he he knows what the okay. problems are with his plan whereas Cressides has convinced himself that oh this isn't a problem like he's so flippant about violence flippant. yeah and and that that is the one like, I still think he's a really good character. He's a really good villain. But that is what keeps him from being, like, a top-tier villain for me. Because he he has a tendency toward caricature, like, mustache-twirling villain at certain points. And that really? comes from his lack of self-awareness. Damn, I didn't get any of that, of that feel like, from like the, the casual The casual grandstanding uh, that he does when he's taking out the Morsinis. I love it! Like... Like, it's it's cool spectacle, but it's tough to reconcile that with him trying to, like, moralize sure, to okay. Sanchia. And, and that's where that self-awareness comes in that he just doesn't have that a character like Mylecoth does. I would I would say Cressides is more like, I would put him on a level with, like, Raja Ten in the Rune Lords. Very okay. good villain, but not, like, top tier, the best I've ever read. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. I still think he's top tier, but I cannot really disagree with anything you just said. Uh, he didn't strike him to. He didn't come off to me as unself-aware so much as pragmatic in a twisted way, a really twisted way. Um, this like take the scene in the mountain. The way like oh my. You know, I'm just going to talk about actually the spectacle for a second. The scene in the mountain <laughs> when he casually slaughters the entire Michiel army. His, but the, we have this dichotomy because th there's this lazy intonation that he employs as he lectures them over the mm -hmm. sounds of their horrific dying. He just goes, "Enough!" 
And then he just goes, complacent, more slaughtering. Overconfident, more slaughtering. Fat, more slaughter. And then he goes, he ends it with that hammer. You don't know how many empires I've crushed in my day. I was like, he just, he keeps, oh no, oh, sorry, yeah. that wasn't the last line. To be honest, your empire isn't even entirely or terribly inspired, yet I will relish grinding it into sand and ash, just like all the others. Yeah, absolutely an epic mm, scene. Finger licking good. Scene. But then he turns around after that work is done, and he, he looks at Sanchi and he goes, or maybe it was Orso, and he goes, well, it's been a long time since I do that. I was just like, yeah. oh, I loved it. I love these startling points of humanity that come out of such an intimidating figure. Another point, when he sits down, he's just cross-legged floating in the moonlight in what I picture is like a meditative stance. And Sanchia approaches him, you know, for their con their final conflict. Oh, sorry, she doesn't actually approach him. He looks up at her, he sees her, and he just waves cheerfully. I just, I love yeah, it. I don't know yeah. what it is about that. I just love it. Yeah, I mean he's he's definitely good. There are some awesome scenes with him, but I <laughs> um, just I just had a little bit of a problem with his uh, the the logical faults in sure, and we get those the, the disconnect between his actions and his moral philosophy. Yeah, and you can say that because we we actually get inside his head. We actually get what I was not expecting to get. Yeah. Crescidi's points of view. Like I didn't even know I wanted those, but. Bring me more. And can you I know? just say, I feel so bad for that kid, Participatio. Oh, yeah, that like, was a little... Oh, mm. The stuff that he had to do. Like, yeah. just, like, he had no idea what's going on, and then he's just complicit in horrific slaughter. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, adding to the dimension of a villain like this is very important. Well, we see these memories of the man in the cave weeping over the, the sickly child. That's the moment I, would, I got to, Drew. You'll probably remember this text. Oh, there goes my phone. Sorry, it's, the alarm's going off. Um, there's a moment where I, I texted you, I am so on board for this fucking story. Yes. Yeah. The moment was when I got to the, the memory of the man in the cave weeping over the sickly child. And we knew that had something to do with Chrysidi's past. Like, yeah. I, with a character of this magnitude, with Crescides Magnus, the first, supposedly, the first of all Hierophants, it, w it would be incredibly easy, I think, for an author to give him a simple motivation, a simple backstory, a simple personality. It could still work. But the true genius of the conflict in this book is how much depth there is to Crescides, I think. He's a very mm -hmm. flexible villain. He can intimidate. <laughs> he can intimidate. He can dominate. He can plan. He can lecture at a whole army as he slaughters them with less effort than throwing a punch. But underneath all that, he's still a man. He doesn't address mm -hmm. everyone equally as inferiors. He plays favorites. Based on, to me, what seems like a whim at times, he pursues justice in a very twisted, twisted way. In a lot of these ways, he pulls us into these twists with him. Seeing him force a man to saw off his own thumb and... Honestly, I'm kind of disturbed by the fact that I wasn't disturbed by it. Oh, I was disturbed by that. That that scene that scene freaked me out. Like I'm just so I just like I'm disturbed to be satisfied. It's like yeah, this guy got we got you know this guy was a horrible human being. But oh yeah, he was. It's like again he he pulls you into that that twisted logic that twisted justice. And it's like this is what this guy deserves. It's like Jesus. It's dark. It, honestly, did that scene kind of strike you a little bit like uh, something out of Blade of Taishal? 
Um, not as I gruesome mean, can, or as graphic. I could see the comparison. I could, I could see the comparison. It didn't remind me of Blade of Taishal, but I could, I could see why definitely remind somebody me. might make that connection. Yeah. And I, I, the, like, like those times when he just stops and he's completely changes his tone and starts talking in a cheerful manner, despite the fact that he's surrounded by so much blood and gore. <laughs> or that that little mm-hmm. wave in the in the lamplight. I, I, you can't deny he's got class. <laughs> I like. The, I don't know why I like this this character. I'm like, oh yeah, well, I another one I just remembered. When he's popping in and out of all over the city in in existence, and he's dropping all these soldiers at various locations all around the world, and then he informs the Dandolo officer that the targets were neutralized, and the officer is just shakily asks, he's like, do they, do they, do they live? And Chrysides, literally in the text, has to stop and think, responding with, well, probably for a little while. <laughs> I laughed yeah. a lot at that. I I like this guy. I like this guy. I don't. I don't like that. I like this guy, but I like this guy. Wow. Okay. Uh, so do you yeah. have any other character notes? No, I was going to talk about Paulina, but I didn't find the right words. I do like that character. I just want to say I thought she was going to have a much larger role in this book, and I know she's going to have a huge role yeah. in the next book. But yeah. I, I liked her. She, she, she was honest. She wasn't weaselly. She wasn't trying to. Um, force her well she was trying to force her logic down their throats but she was she was very blatant and self she was very self-aware yeah you know she she had a very honest approach and i i look forward to getting more of her in book three polina yeah she she struck me as somebody you know like a a very typically second book of the trilogy kind of character Mm -hmm. who's introduced here but doesn't do a whole lot because her main purpose is for the third book. There are, there are a few different characters who kind of get that treatment in this book, you know? And, and, uh, it's, it was like that where I came out of the book thinking, Oh, okay. She was there. We'll see how, we'll see how she is in the next one when she really gets some page time. Yeah, definitely. Um, as far as as far as I don't have really really any miscellaneous points, or if I did, I already got them out of the way in our character discussion. I have a couple predictions to lay down before we go into our conclusion. Uh, well, um, I was going to say if you wanted to do predictions, our three favorite scenes first. Oh, uh, you want to do predictions first? Sure. Okay. Because uh, my predictions aren't aren't very long. There's only a couple small ones mm-hmm. actually. There's nothing like coming out of this book like I had coming out of the first book. So my first prediction is that there's a, like, for example, there was a moment in this book where Sancha is explaining to Polina about the Tavani tradition with the giant lamps before monsoon season because of this supposed flood that nearly wiped, or really exterminated the entire city, you know, about a, about a century or two prior. And I'm, my prediction is that this is going to be revealed as not having been a natural flood. There were some big players involved with the near... Uh, destruction of Tavon earlier, and we might even see it again. More so than we saw at the end of this book. Okay. Um, I only have one more, but do you want to go back and forth? How many do you have? Do you have any sure. predictions? I have just a couple. Sure, I have two. Myself, um, so go ahead. So, so my first one isn't like a super specific prediction, but there was one thing that stood out over the course of these two books, and, and that was how consistently Bennett likes to seed inconsequential details that become important later things like the mods in the first book okay or you know sanchia thinking about how old she's getting in the second book things like that 
Mm-hmm. One thing I noticed, almost every single scene with Crisides, he has a, a, a very specific mannerism where he tilts his head. Yes. And and I was surprised that there wasn't some kind of uh, revelation behind that, some weakness to him or or something in relation to that head tilt that that didn't come up in this book. So I think that's still some foreshadowing that we're getting. Mm, interesting. That's going to show up in the third book. I just chalked it up to, yeah, like a, just a, a specific mannerism, a way to show that he's thoughtful, you know? But it was just, and creepy it too. happened it's, so much. Yeah, yeah. So much. Well, another thing that he kept, something that, that, a phrase that he kept saying that started to get on my nerves, I didn't want it to be this way. Or yeah, it wasn't yeah. supposed to be this, this way. Is he said ideal. it like four times before we even got into the next scene. The first scene, he said it three times, I think. Mm-hmm. And then he said it immediately to Ophelia following that. And I was like, oh my god, okay. I figured that was going to be, there was going to be something about that. And of course, near the end, we got it for the fifth time when he said it wasn't supposed to be this way. Or I'm paraphrasing yeah. at this point. We, we got another one. But I thought there was going to be something deeper to why, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's, that, was, that was just a complete riff, though. Um, my last prediction... Uh, Valeria claimed she was built in a manner that left her unable to speak the maker's name. Now, obviously, we assume she can't actually say Crisides. But I'm formally predicting that Crisides has another name. One that goes even deeper. And for some reason, there is a reason that he doesn't want others to know it. Hmm. Okay. And that's it for my predictions. Alright. Well, my last prediction is... Just that I think we're gonna see a like, uh, like meta reality showdown with Valeria, where uh, when when the twinning happened with you know the group of them, yeah, and Sanchia sees like a group of people on the beach opening oh. these doors, and yes. then other others of them see the doors opening, but they're in like different circumstances. Yes, uh, there's. Those doors are going to be a big deal, and and I think we're going to see a showdown with Valeria behind those doors in the fabric of creation among the commands of God Himself, like that kind of a a thing. Do you think we're going to meet the God Himself at some point? Ooh, I don't know. Do you think we perhaps already have met the God Himself at some point? No, I don't think so. Okay, okay. I don't think we have either, but I think we will eventually. Yeah. It's too cool. Okay. Too cool not okay. to explore. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, shall we go into the three favorite scenes then? Let's do it. Back and forth, just like we normally do? Sure. All right, I'll start. Crisides destroying the mountain. I mean, it's, you could probably see it coming with that much spectacle. As the shattering booms fill the city in waves of pressure, as Sanchia and company are making their desperate escape, and they can just hear that repeated bam, bam, as like he's literally bringing down the mountain. Oh my god, it was so chilling and so cool. Nice. So, uh, just going in chronological order through the book, oh, my okay, first cool. scene is... Is just the the conversation between Crisides and Sanchia on the ga- uh, the galleon, and just yeah. just the creepy atmosphere, the spectacle of it, where he's like floating in the middle of this like where the ship just got cored by you know 
<laughs> cord. And, yeah, yeah, it was like cord like an apple. Reversal uh, of gravity, I think, did it in that case. Holy yeah. crap. Um, I I loved the setting there. I loved the tone. I I thought it was just spectacular. Awesome. Yeah. No. My my second place uh, scene. Uh, my my previous one was third place. My my next one's second. My runner up is a is. A lot of the exact same. It's just bigger, I guess. It encompasses the, the scene as a whole, or the sequence as a whole. I just wrote the infiltration of the Dandolo vessel and the return of Chrysides Magnus. The horror, the power, the placing so unexpectedly early in the novel. I just felt amazing. So, yeah, I guess our second place, more or less, is the exact same thing yeah. I just wrote. I just encompassed a larger part, I suppose. I took the cheap way out. I didn't say a specific moment. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, my my second one was the moment of twinning with Sanchia and Berenice and how just insane, how wild that whole scene got. Like, got super cerebral and trippy and, like, not at all what I expected to happen in a book like Shorefall. You know, it, it was some, some really, really crazy stuff. And I, I thought it was executed very well. Wow. See, I really liked that, that scene. Because it was exactly what I had been hoping and expecting it was going to be. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah, I did like that scene. Uh, my, my very favorite, though, which has probably come to no surprise to anyone, you know, as no surprise to anyone, I should say, who heard me waxing rhapsodic about it earlier, um, Gregor's voluntary death and all of his heartbreaking memories from mm -hmm. warm memories of his mother and how she truly loved him to his beyond traumatizing experience in a carriage accident, his helpless agony as the scrivings in his head try and lash out to protect him and as he sits in the chair and he's screaming. And like, there's just, there's no words. Everything about those 20 or 30 pages was beautiful. This was an experience I haven't had in ever, I don't think. And, and the context that this goes on to give us for Gregor's climax later in the book Grasping Berenice's trembling hand as she cries for his pain. Just gorgeous. I am nothing but absolutely reverent of what Bennett accomplished with Gregor's character arc in this book. Yeah. yeah. So the memories. That's my favorite scene in the whole book. Gregor's memories. Oh my. So oh. to me specifically, my favorite was... Um, that moment that moment of tension on the threshold of the room where we know gregor has been commanded to kill anyone who steps foot in the room and we mm. have ophelia and berenice and and the dynamic of that situation seeing the internal struggle play out for gregor and berenice reaching the handout ophelia letting herself die so that she can free her son you know it wonderful scene wonderful scene mm. Yeah, yeah, and seeing and seeing Gregor, you know, overcome with emotion, he's just on his knees as Berenice is holding him, and he's screaming and he's crying about having, he's saying, "My mother, my own mother." That's just, mm -hmm. my God, I didn't, I had no idea, particularly coming out of Foundry side, I hadn't the foggiest idea that Bennett was capable of hurting somebody, <laughs> not not a character, but a reader that badly. That was absolutely incredible and i cannot explain how inspiring and reverent so inspiring it is and how reverent i am that is unbelievable 
I only hope I can write a scene someday with half as much emotional intensity. Yeah. 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 So that's it for me there. Well, now I have my conclusion we, uh, in the final draft, so. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, shall we wrap up? Yeah, okay, I'll wrap up. Um, I'll, At least I'll wrap up with my, my points here. I loved this book. I wouldn't say I loved all of it, but it's definitely one of the greatest books, I think, that we have featured yet on 66 episodes of this podcast. I, I can't say I've been this surprised by a book since Steelheart back in 2013. I enjoyed Foundryside. Again, I enjoyed it, but this book is entirely different. This is not even, it doesn't even read like the same author in some areas. It's so much more action-packed than I had been expecting, even though we got a decent amount in Foundryside. But things in this book just happen, happen, happen. You don't really have a lot of downtime with, as I explained earlier, with a magic system to me this convoluted. I figured that amount of pacing was excellent, since I didn't really have much chance to grow bored enough to put the book down for any length of time. Um, yeah. I'll just wrap up again the heartbreaking revelations about Gregor's past, Cressidi's story, and how ultimately each major player is just trying to do what they see as best for everyone is superb. Like, there's so much more dimension and depth to these characters than we had previously. I am invested equally in Sanchia and Berenice and Gregor and Clef and even Cressidi's in some ways. So all in all, for me, this book, I don't, I've, I don't think I've done this yet. Maybe I have once or twice. I'll give this book a rating. For me, 9 out of 10. 9.5 out of 10. I was absolutely floored by the quality of this book compared to its predecessor, too. Like, unbelievable. I loved it. I fucking loved it. All right, I'm done. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I would echo a lot of those sentiments. I thought this was a better book than Foundryside. Undoubtedly. I enjoyed Foundryside, but there were a lot of flaws in it. This one has fewer flaws, and most of the flaws are pretty subjective for me. Yes, uh, I think all of them are for me. It, yeah. it, it is it is super tightly structured, fast-paced. It executes the character arcs well. Uh, just in general, a really impressive book. I'm much more excited about the third book now than I am about, or than I was about Shorefall after reading Foundryside. So... Well. Well put. Agreed. All right. Final draft. Yes. Yeah, I'll go first since I have the boring choice again. More <laughs> of the Bolthouse Farms fruit smoothies. Right here. Ooh. A triumphant return to the blue goodness. I'm still taking it a bit easy on the front of drinking. I haven't stopped entirely, but I'm still taking it easy, particularly after that last the Memory of Light episode. Uh, I haven't had much to drink since then. I've had a few, but <laughs> I've had like two drinks since then. And I mean, this you cannot go wrong with excellent fruit smoothie. I've I, I've explained how awesome this this juice is. I don't need to explain it again. I'm just drinking it again. And that in itself stands for it. All right. Well. What are you drinking? I did, I did bring in something exciting. I bet. So I am drinking a beer from Casey Brewing and Blending. In Glenwood Springs, Colorado. This is a honey ale aged in oak barrels, double fruited with apricots and peaches. And it is uh, wow. It is plenty sour, a lot of fruit. I get a lot more of the apricot up front and then a little bit of peach in the finish. It's just, it's an extremely well executed beer as every KC beer that I've had is. They're one of the best 
you know, breweries in the state. But if you will recall on our Foundry side episodes, oh God, I wanted to get a beer that I couldn't get my hands on. Uh-huh. Well, I got my hands on it. Ooh. This is called One Key. <laughs> yes! I love it. That's got to be the best one, right? Oh, Maiden's Kiss was good. Wolf's Wedding was great. Endless one ending. Key. Endless ending was, was, was golden. I still think... I, uh, I, I, gotta, I still, I still got to give it to Maiden's Kiss, but goddamn One Key is, is probably just perfect. Is, yeah. there a, is there a better... Besides, like... Crescides. Like, that's the only... <laughs> You'd have to actually dive into actual in-character, like, in-text world or characters to get a better name or better thematic yeah. beer than One Key. Oh, my God. Yep. Yeah, I I wanted to, you know, get my hands on this beer for Foundry Side, but I couldn't. I, you know, I had to trade for it because it, it was a members-only bottle for the uh, KC family membership deal uh but i finally finally closed a trade on it so you know i just realized how you can top that one for the next episode you can brew your own and then call it it. (laughs) right (laughs) i don't know we'll we'll see uh there's there's definitely a possibility that i'll start doing some home brewing in the next few months so Mm. uh that said this has been episode what did we say? 66? 66 episodes this one makes. I, I feel like I ask that every week now. I've just completely I, lost track. I'm pretty sure <laughs> I have to look it up every single week when I'm making my intro because I forget every week too. Yeah, so next up we are doing The Black Company by Glenn Cook. Uh, we're doing the entire first book called The, the Black Company. And uh, we're... we're we're going to have a lot of fun with these. So uh, just for the next little bit, we're going to be doing the first four Black Company books. And they're all pretty short, so we're going to do one episode for each of them. We won't won't have to deal with, you know, three-parters, like A Memory of Light or anything like that. Shout out to Yeah, so, chaos. <laughs> so as always, check us out on Patreon if you want to support the podcast. You can get access to episodes early, get our monthly newsletter, monthly short fiction bonus episodes things like that uh that support there allows us to keep doing this and keep paying pat and paying danny for the awesome awesome artwork so yeah patreon.com slash thinking out loud as always i'm your host drew mccaffrey with me is my co-host rob santos yo thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time bye everyone <laughs>